so our spending, if you couple the you know 10, 20 percent of you know whatever the inflation has been since COVID, plus the fact that we've had two children, and now we're thinking about getting new homes, and we're sending the kids to school, and we're paying for food and diapers and daycare and everything that goes along with it. If you don't think the economy benefits from that, you're kidding. Yeah. So it will be interesting over the next few years. We've got millennials that have good home equity, that have rising wages, that have growing families. And a lot of that points to a strong economy. Yeah, good, good morning, everybody. It is January 22nd, uh, this wonderful year of 2024. Excited to be here. Thank you for listening to the Money Alchemist podcast. I'm one of your hosts, uh, Ben Jones with National Wealth Management Group. And I'm Brent Gargano with Infinite Wealth Planning. Thank you for being here today. Brent, how was your weekend? What did you get into? You know, we, uh, it snowed here this weekend. So my kids uh, who haven't had a whole lot of experience with snow got to go out in the snow and my four-year-old daughter thought it was great. She was she was way into it. My my two-year-old son got out there and it was too cold for him. So he just started crying. So we all <laughs> we all hung out inside and, and it that was uh, it was pretty low-key. Yeah, that tracks. Um, you know what I find hilarious is so we the snow the amount of snow that we got on Friday wasn't a lot. Um, what, how many inches did we get? It was I like think I got four inches, four inches? three inches, okay. maybe. We, not not a ton. I, see, I, it always confuses me. They say inches because I go out there, when I look at it. If it doesn't cover the grass, you know, if the grass blades are still I still had out, grass blades through it. Yeah, yeah, then I would say at most you're talking two inches. I can't, um, I cut my grass high. Yeah, well I do too. I cut mine at three and a half to four inches, but. Anyway, so we but we got we got a pretty decent amount, but it wasn't a lot. You know, the Canadians would laugh at us. <laughs> so but what's funny is that um, yeah, everybody, you know, shuts down. They're like a little bit of snow. The first snow of the year, which this is actually the first snow that we, we've had this winter in Cincinnati. Yeah. So, you know, the first snow of the year, they will um, just shut down everything. And uh, then we'll end up with no school. People will cancel appointments. I have three appointments, all of them rescheduled. <laughs> you know, kids didn't have school. Um, but then if we had two or three more snows just like that, and it would be disruptive, people are like, oh, no, we were not worried about it anymore. So it's like it's like the first snow of every year is a it's almost like a guaranteed impromptu holiday. Well, you know what I'm saying? I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. And my my joke is that Charlotte is too far north to where it actually gets snow from time to time, uh-huh. but far enough south to where they have no idea what to do with it. So yeah. in Charlotte, I mean, if you got a quarter of an inch of snow, you're crazy if you went out. We had snow days at the drop of a hat when I was a kid. As I got older and we moved to Cincinnati, uh, when I when I worked at at Fidelity, they have a, a a site in Raleigh and a site here. Raleigh's fairly close to Charlotte, and whenever whenever it snowed in Raleigh and snowed in Cincinnati, it would be you Cincinnati guys got to get in 
and all the Raleigh people were off work. So there I am in my two wheel drive sports car driving down the highway that's covered in snow. Yeah. Getting to get, get going to work. Um, so Cincinnati has the opposite problem. We're too far south to really get a lot of snow. Yep. Like you said, the people up in the Great Lakes, they're kind of laughing at us. And we're far enough north to where the city knows, like the state of Ohio generally knows, here's how you deal with snow. And so city seems to have all the salt, all the things that they need to have. So it's taken care of. Can we comment briefly on the ridiculous amount of salt that ODOT has put on our roads? It is unbelievably... Uh, my. I have my car uh, traction control has activated more because of salt patches than it has snow. It's unbelievable how much salt they like to the point where my cabin aero filter can't filter it all out. And I am coughing because of all the salt residue that gets kicked up by the cars on the highway. Are you getting this or am I the only one? I don't know about the residue, oh but my it's gosh. certainly you salty go, out You there. go outside. You just go outside on your way out the door today. Go outside and just take a deep breath. You're going to taste salt, <laughs> especially where our office might buy. Anyway, I, just a mild complaint. I've always disliked the snowplow drivers and the salt because when I was a kid, they were the reason why school opened, you know, and now, <laughs> and now as an adult, they're the reason why I have to put so much money in Mike's car wash. <laughs> so it's like, I can't, can we just cool it on the salt guys? Come on. Uh, we don't need that much. They're we salting didn't have, the roads. We didn't use salt in Charlotte when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. There, there well, was no salt. Yeah. Well, that, did you hear Nashville got seven inches of snow last week? I believe not that, it. Not last week, but the week prior. That that storm was really south of, I mean, we were kind of the northern, the, the Ohio River divides southern Ohio and northern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something, I mean, I'm, this isn't a meteorology podcast, but I think there's something to that river yeah. and how it changes the atmosphere. Because we tend to, if, if something drifts right below us, it tends to go right below us, mm-hmm. you know, in Northern Kentucky. So I'm I'm not surprised to hear Tennessee. I'm sure a lot of Kentucky, I'm sure they all got pretty well taken. Oh out. man, they were shut down for several days down there. Cause they, they don't have all the, the snow removal equipment that we do. I mean, up Far here, North. ODOT and, and all the, all the landscapers out there, they are, they're some of the, the most excited people when it comes to a little bit of snow, they're all out there at three in the morning, you know, just dumping all sorts of, you know, stuff on the roads and they're, and they're, you know, just in my little cul-de-sac, the snowplow came through Friday morning, like three times. <laughs> it's like, dude, you got it the first time. <laughs> anyway. Um, so yeah, we had exciting, uh, exciting time this weekend. Did, did you do any sledding or anything? Or Yeah. My, my, my daughter did, but yeah. the chef was in, inside. He was not having it. So my kids uh, went outside and they, they had snowball fights and then uh, lots of tears Lots of tears came in. I had to shut it down one or two times. Uh, oh, no. You know, I got my, my oldest son is just, he thinks he's playing with a bunch of teenagers. He's just chucking to, you know, big old snowballs right at his brothers and they're about half his size. So, oh, no. you know, we Poor had to, guys. yeah, it's, yeah, they know what they're getting into. I told them, I was like, as they're getting out, getting ready to go out there, I told my two little ones, I said, you know, you're going to come back in here crying because Barrett's going to throw the snowball too hard at you. And they said, I don't care. <laughs> No, it was apparently they do. So lot, lots of fun to be had. Um, it was definitely a, a good, um, a, a good experience. It's always fun to get the first snow, but then you get you get sick of it real quick. Um, so far, let's uh, talk about you know stocks, uh, what they've done year to date, and where we finished up the year. I know you have some stats for us, and 
Uh, I think everybody was glad to see what happened last year in their portfolios. Moving from fresh powder to to fresh all time highs. Yes. So some markets last Friday had a, had a heck of a rally to end up closing the day at a new all time high. So for some context, we ended up peaking. The previous peak was literally the first day of 2022. Markets opened in 2022 at highs and they proceeded to sell off. And 2022 was pretty much characterized by high inflation, the Federal Reserve hiking rates faster than ever before, and stocks really getting just pretty bludgeoned as a result of what was going on in the bond market. So 2022, we we had a pretty miserable year. 2023, we actually ended up, the S&P for 2023 was positive 24%. The NASDAQ was up roughly 43%. I've got my, my Y charts data here. And the Dow was up actually not a little a little less than 12%. So last year basically we came to terms with the fact that the Federal Reserve was going to not have to continue hiking, right? So we got to what five and a quarter, five and a half percent rates uh, on their on their federal funds rate. They've they've signaled that that's going to be where they stop. Inflation has continued to come down. The unemployment rate has stayed low, right? So these are all, and and of course, it, we can't talk about 2023 without talking about AI and the influence that AI and technology had on the market. So now we're in 2024. It's been two years since that peak, and we finally got to back where we started. Yeah. So, and what made 2022 so bad, I think, for a lot of folks, because it was funny, is that 2020. We had an entry year decline of negative thirty four percent on the S and P five hundred, and it was and it was brutal. But it happened like boom. You know, it's like the difference between taking your band, ripping the band aid off, and then taking out just a little teeny tiny bit at a time. Twenty twenty two is painful because it was such a steady decline that just happened uh, slowly. I, I, I would say it's like death by a thousand cuts, and every statement you got was going to be lower than this prior statement because it was just a state of decline. But then all of a sudden, you know, when the Fed decided, hey, we're done, we're, you know, we're, we're pausing here, we're not raising interest rates, then the market just took that as a signal that, okay, the pivot's imminent. Uh, it's going to happen. Markets are going to rip. I think the markets kind of figured it out right around the time that SVB collapsed. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is SVB collapsed, but the Fed didn't stop hiking. So, well, right. But I think mm -hmm. the market was smarter. The market had kind of sniffed out what was going on. So for some context for the listener, last, I think it was March, Silicon Valley Bank, which is a bank in Silicon Valley, had basically mismanaged, you know, banks are in the business of consumers deposit money so you come to the bank they give them your money you give them their your their their mo your money they hold on to it but even though when you log in you see all your dollars there what they're really doing is they're turning around and taking your money and lending it out and essentially they had lent out the money in some actually government bonds 
But the issue is they were 10 year bonds. So they didn't mature for 10 years and they paid really low interest rates. So when interest rates went up, nobody wanted to buy the low rate bonds that were still eight years from maturity. And it left the bank in a situation where they had people withdrawing money now and the bank didn't have all of the money to go, go get. And so I I think it really signaled just how much potential damage the Fed could do in the system by by cranking rates higher. And Silicon Valley was poor risk management, really. I mean, it, it doesn't take a genius to say, hey, it's not a great idea to buy 10-year bonds when they're you know, paying roughly 1% or something like that. But at the end of the day, um, it did, it, it indicated some of the potential underlying issues in the banking system. And it was kind of a warning to the Fed to be a little bit careful. Uh, see, I, I don't necessarily think it was the Fed's fault. So the Fed, you got to understand why was the Fed increasing interest rates? They were increasing interest rates in reaction to inflation. So where Silicon Valley failed was in a duration mismatch. The Fed does very little to control long-term rates. Yeah, they, they can engage in quantitative easing and they can control rates indirectly at the short end of the curve, you know, and they can affect money market rates. That's why you see the short-term rates and, you know, T-notes and things even lower duration than that are, are floating around, you know, five, five and a quarter percent right now. But they have little to no control over the long-term rates. And where Silicon Valley got in trouble uh, was they, they made a big bet without hedging it. Um, against um, long-term rates heading higher. And of course, we know long-term rates headed higher. Um, so I don't necessarily want to blame the but Fed let's for not all mistake, that. The amount of money that these banks took in in 2020 because of people getting checks, businesses getting checks. I mean, there was money getting handed out. So they had tons of deposits and they had to do something with them. So they have to put that money to work. If you can't make loans well, with yeah, it, you buy what Silicon treasuries. Valley was no. doing is they're making uh, speculative bets on long-term rates. It, it, basically, Silicon Valley Bank uh, was what you know failed because of mismanagement, uh, primarily around poor risk management, uh, and then also too because of increasing rates. So I think your argument is that um, it signaled to the market that SVB happened. So therefore, other banks are probably in hot water. And there therefore, are other banks that are in hot. I mean, they're not to the level that SVB is, but let's not make the mistake that when those rates went up, I don't care if you're SVB and you're mismanaging things. If you are a bank and you are in the business of borrowing short money on a short-term basis from depositors and lending money on a long-term basis, and we had two years where those depositors were doing nothing but depositing and now we've had two years where a lot of those depositors are withdrawing. And, and, and on top of that, those loans that you made looking worse, it's tough on all of the banks. As SV, we're, SVB is, was just basically the, 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 the poorest managed. So it became kind of the, the it drew the short straw. Yeah. so to speak. But all of these banks were feeling pressure and it was, and it was a good reminder. I think the market was able to figure out with that, that it, it did mean the fed was going to, although the fed could crank rates to that point, it meant we were starting to get to a point where the level of restriction that the fed was doing was, was, was pretty, pretty intense. 
Well, it was, it was the most aggressive rate hike campaign ever. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the markets are going to respond to that. <laughs> and, and they did. And when the Fed paused, but also, too, one thing that we often forget is we say that we say that, oh, it's the most aggressive uh, rate hiking campaign the Fed has ever engaged in. But we just got through the most aggressive uh, monetary stimulus this country had ever engaged in. So, you know, that, let, let's 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 compare. Let's put the two together for comparison. So it was, I think, an aggressive uh, central bank response to that uh, fiscal policy was necessary to curtail runaway inflation. And the inflation animal is still not um, conquered. I don't think it ever will be. I think we're always going to have inflation, but it's certainly tamed down. I mean, uh, how about them gas prices? (laughs) Have you been looking at that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, gas prices have come down Down a lot. Quite a bit. Yeah. Groceries. Yep. You know, I mean, I don't know if they've come down. I would say that they've stopped increasing so much. Um, well, and th- this is one of the 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 mis- misunderstood aspects of inflation. When you have 9% inflation like we had in 2022 and prices are going up, people think that to get no inflation, that prices actually need to come down. Yes. But that's actually not true. You just need them to stop going up. Yeah. Right. And so really the truth is we're, I mean, of course there are things like, I think the price of bacon is 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 less than it was in what I paid in the pandemic. I mean, there are there are individual items, but on the aggregate, yeah, uh, prices are are going down. They're just not going up. Yeah, as quickly. Goes, and that's known as disinflation. So that that's when inflate the pace of inflation subsides. So I I personally think that um, going into twenty twenty four and actually into twenty twenty three. I did not see an unhealthy consumer. I don't know about you. I'm, you know, my anecdotal observations going into restaurants, you know, you're always fighting crowds. seems like we're always on a wait list. I've got six kids. So I'm trying, not six kids, six, six family, six family six. members. Oh gosh. I can't think about having six kids, but all right. Four kids, two adults. Whenever we go into a restaurant, it is an event because there, you know, restaurants only have most of their tops are for, you know, for four people. So normal families that for, uh, you know, that have, you know, a party of four. So I'm, we're always having to wait like 30, 40 minutes uh, for a table. And it seems like whenever um, we're it's prime meal time, you know, like noon or late after late, like five to six o'clock. We're, we're, we just don't go to restaurants anymore because it's, we have to wait 45 minutes because there's always a crowd. Um, and I think that is a, is a pretty good, um, you know, uh, uh, test litmus litmus test. Yeah. For how the economy is doing. Um, also too, I mean, you love Costco. We both love Costco. When's the time, when's the last time you went to Costco and it wasn't standing room only, you know, it is always packed. There's never a slow time at Costco, you know, so the consumers out there spending money. um, It seems to me that they're um, ever since the pandemic, you're seeing the trends of spending go more towards services than manufactured goods. Um, I I don't know if you have any evidence on why charts to suggest that, but that's just my observation. Um, So going into uh, 2024, I think I'm seeing a consumer that's really strong. We've got, the stock market at the U.S. stock market. Let's let's be very well, specific a lot of about global that. Global stock markets are doing really well right now. Not the Chinese stock market. I'm looking at um, just 
quick uh, observation here on another uh, Y charts here from January. Uh, let's see here. January of uh, 2014 to January of 2024, the S&P 500, uh, the SPY, which is an ETF that tracks that index, is up a cumulative 206.8%, uh, whereas the, um, an ETF known as the FXI that tracks the uh, Chinese large cap uh, stock index, um, that is actually lost money. That's down 23%. Can you believe that? So, so the U.S. stock market has really done incredibly well, especially relative to uh, international options, notably emerging markets, uh, which are dominated meanwhile by China. Meanwhile in Japan, mm -hmm. meanwhile in India, Europe. meanwhile in Germany, mm -hmm. in Italy, in the U.K., in the U.S., we're all hitting all-time yeah, highs. All-time highs. So, which back on track, that leads me to the, the point that I was making. So you've got that. Then you've also got this huge run-up in, in home values. You know, which everybody's complaining about for new home buyers, but nobody's talking about what that means for existing homeowners. Yeah, there's there's a visual capitalist did a piece on this, and it looks at the price of renting a home versus buying a home in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And for the about a decade prior to 2020, it was actually cheaper to buy than it was to to rent. Yeah. As of last couple of years, that has completely flipped on its head. It's now 50% more expensive to buy a house than it is to rent a house. Yeah, that says something. And that, it, so that's really uh, been the bane of a lot of uh, new homeowners, not new homeowners, but people who want to be new homeowners uh, exist. And so, you know, I, I, I'm always watching... Uh, my ex feed for interesting tidbits of information. And almost every day there's someone on there complaining about the fact that home prices are as expensive as they are. Um, I don't personally see that turning around though. So I think that if you, and if you look at the, this, I'm looking at the same chart, it's a wonderful chart, uh, you know, by visual capitalists here, it looks like it sources his data uh, from uh, Reventure Consulting, Zillow, Case Shiller, BLS. So it's a variety of different. Uh, I think this is from here. last September, even. So I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's probably a gone older, up since but. then. Um, yeah, but uh, the average cost to buy a home. So this would be the mortgage payment uh, for the average home in the U.S., which is you know, analysis of averages is average analysis, as they say. So take this with a grain of salt. Your market's going to be different, but it's uh, two thousand six hundred ninety-seven dollars a month, whereas the average cost of rent is. $1,845. So if you're wanting to be a homeowner, I mean, it's never been more expensive uh, to make that to make that leap. So there's a rule in financial planning. There's a rule of thumb that basically says that you don't want your mortgage payment to be more than 28% of your gross monthly income. So given that we know mortgage, the, the average mortgage is about what $2,700 a month. Yes. So what would that, what does that mean? The average income needs to be to support that. All right. So it's uh, 2,700 times 12. Uh, let's divide that by point. Uh, was it two eight? Two eight. Yeah. Two eight. Okay. So it looks like $115,714 and 28 cents. So that's actually higher than the, uh, than the average household income yeah. in the U S. So the average household income, uh, looks like I had that stat up here recently. It was like 110,000 something a year. No, 100 and 
Uh, the average household income in 2023 was $106,270, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Interesting. So essentially, if you look at, again, just the rules of thumb, and so in, when, you, when you study financial planning, you, you, you pass a test called the certifi- CFP, become a certified financial planner. There's, there's rules in there, rules of thumb about debt. So 28% of your gross income can no more than 28% of your gross income should be spent on housing costs. And it sounds like as a whole, on average, we've ticked slightly higher than that. Yep. According to the U.S. uh, Census Bureau in 2023, the average uh, household income, now this is households, this is not individual income. Um, So the average household income in 2023 was actually above that, is $106,270.90. Um. So the median household income, however, so the median, if for those of you who don't, you know, aren't familiar, so the median is the most common versus the it's average. Yeah. So it um, so the median income is lower, is 74,202. But of course, they don't um this particular uh data point doesn't separate homeowner versus so renter. even though the mortgages have gotten a lot more expensive, it's in terms of kind of broad ratios, it's still not totally nuts yeah. relative to people's income. Yeah, it really isn't. And that and that's what I've always said, because if you look at that last decade, especially from the time from like 2009, when the when everything was falling apart, really, things got better in 2010, because that's when the, you know, the great financial crisis is more in the rearview mirror. So for about 2010, I'd say about 2019 was the golden that was the golden decade to buy a home. Because the cost of home ownership was significantly less than the cost of rent, as per that chart uh, by the visual capitalist. Um, but also mortgage rates. I mean, we're, we, that was that was zero interest rate policy years, otherwise known as ZERP. So you know that that was when you could get a mortgage, a thirty year mortgage for like three percent. I know people that even have it less. I, I know some folks that got a 30-year mortgage at 2.75. Well, and if you didn't during that decade, you had your opportunity to in the last few years. Oh, yeah. So so really, it's the run-up of home values plus the run-up in mortgage rates. So I was looking at Freddie Mac's uh, chart over the weekend, and um, mortgage rates have come down. So they peaked out uh, last November at uh, 7.79%, which was uh, like a 30-year high. Um, actually, it's when you look back from the data, if you go to Freddie Mac and look at this, it's from 1974. I mean, the people that were buying homes in 1984 were, were laughing at us because it was over 15 percent. Um, so the average rate uh, for a, a mortgage from like 1974 to 1994 was consistently over 7 percent. So this is not abnormal. Um as far as you know, fifty the past fifty years is concerned, what was abnormal was the past decade, really. Uh, but the mortgage rate right now for a thirty year is around six point six percent. Of course, results may vary depending on your credit. Um, and the fifteen year is about uh, five point seven six percent. So definitely uh, not at the peaks, heading down a little bit. I think that's going to put further the fact that it's come down a little bit going into this summer. The Fed is, I. The market's suggesting the Fed is going to cut, which is going to influence possibly long-term rates. That's yet to be seen because what I think what, what people are not counting on right now is just the amount of treasury issuance that Janet Yellen has to um, uh, successfully auction. 
And that is going to just flood markets with um, with treasury notes that could push yields higher. And I think that's what mortgages are going to be priced off of more so than not. So we even if the Fed cuts, you can still see an environment where mortgage rates go up. But well, that's, that's yet to be seen. We'll see that. Historically, mortgage rates are closely correlated with the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And if you actually look at, at, at the spread between mm-hmm. the two, it had been pretty tight. It had been pretty narrow for a period of time. And last year, the, the gap between the mortgage rate and the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield got pretty big. So, for example, like back in October, the Treasury yield hit 5% yeah. at the peak. Mortgage rates at the time were like eight. For some reason, like a three percent spread. For some reason, the, the the treasury it just seems allergic to auctioning off ten year notes because that is the lowest point in the yield curve. But we're we're not seeing a tremendous amount of auctions happening on that. At least not that I've I've seen. Maybe I'm just not paying but, close enough attention. But why would the banks charge a higher rate than the normal rate that they base off of? I, I don't follow you. So. What what was happening is that the banks, because there's this consensus view that rates are going to drop mm-hmm. at some point, the banks are pretty highly aware that the people getting the mortgages today are likely to refinance those mortgages. So what they do is they 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 built a premium. They built in additional cost early on, and they did that by raising the rates more than they would have generally above the 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 US 10 year treasury. So mm-hmm. when when clients were asking last year, you know, hey, what do you think about the future of rates? So clients that were buying houses last year, we had a lot of conversations around don't pay extra points to buy your rate down. Why buy a rate down that you might be refinancing in the next couple of years, right? And and those kinds of which you may not be you but you but can't you do not know historically speaking if you look at the spread of what a of what a mortgage costs above a 10 year treasury it's it was much narrower I, I will than say it was this. last year i will say this that would have been a smart bet to make but there's no guarantee there's no guarantee so yeah. of course you have to make sure that it's fine mm-hmm. like you can't you can't buy a house with a mortgage that's too high and say Okay, this mortgage payment is more than I can afford, but I'm going to refinance it so it's not not a big deal. You can buy a house that you can afford and say, hey, it might not be a good idea to pay extra money to buy my rate down when I think there's a good likelihood that I'll be refinancing this rate in the future. I think those are two separate discussions. Mm -hmm. So so looking at the housing market um, with rates that I think you and I are both in agreement that they're probably not going to go higher. Um, they could, but it certainly doesn't seem like the market would support it because of the run up in prices. So you either either rates go higher and prices would probably have to moderate, or or prices continue to climb higher and rates stay roughly where they're at. Um, I I personally don't know. Uh, where rates are going to head from here, but I know if if you are in a in the market for a home right now, um, you're you're in a highly competitive situation for one, uh, and two, it's going to cost you a lot more to buy that home. So you so you should ha- be more long term committed to home ownership. So now more than ever. So if you're if you're a consumer looking to just park your place you know, park your stuff at a place for like two to three years, 
I think you'd be crazy to buy a house right now. <laughs> so yeah. you really, I think for, for the price of home ownership, because when you buy a home and you, and you have a 30 year mortgage or a 15 year, your payment is fixed, correct? So it's a fixed rate. If you do the right thing by a fixed rate mortgage. Um, whereas rent, rent inflates generally. Um, so for rent to catch up to where, so average rent is like 1800, the average uh, uh, home ownership is $900 higher. So for rent to catch up to where mortgages are today, I would say at least 10 years, Yeah, 10 years of, uh, of, of inflation. And, and you factor in, I see, you know, multifamily units being built everywhere. Um, I, I see very few single family homes being built. They're still being built, but not as certainly not as many as we did like in the early 2000s. Doesn't seem like they're getting thrown up everywhere. But um, I'm also I'm obviously just looking in my little little zone, which is already built out. Could be like in the in the periphery of the cities. These neighborhoods are going up like crazy. But um, I see uh, apartment units going up everywhere, which is going to further uh, you know reduce the inflation of rent. So renting is certainly attractive for uh, uh, more attractive now than it ever has been. But let's not just focus on that side of the equation, because we still have a huge percentage of Americans that um, derive a lot of their net worth from their home equity. Um, JP Morgan suggests that, you know, 29 percent of household net worth on average in the U.S. is purely from their, um, their real estate, the, the real estate portfolios. And, um, you, you sent me an article over the weekend. I think it was, it was, was it lending tree or no, it's CNBC. I um, think they pulled the data from lending tree, but well, where, where was it? No, it wasn't. CNBC. It was, um, no, it was lending tree. Yeah. So, le- so lending tree, uh, American, according to lending tree, American homeowners are sitting on, listen to this, $28.7 trillion of home equity. Yikes. That's a lot. Uh, you know, and if you average that out across all homeowners in the US, that is an average of 334,000 in equity for each homeowner. That's, that's a pile of cash. Yeah. So, you know, so as, as bad as the situation is for people, you know, home starters looking to get break into the market, it's still, you can still do it. And I still would recommend it, but just, you know, lengthen your time horizon you know, for, to at least a decade, but for existing homeowners, I mean, you're sitting on, um, probably the, the largest, um, pile of cash that you didn't know existed. So what do you think is going to happen with that? I, you know, I, I think that the stock market over the last 10 years has really been kind of held on the back of the U S consumer, right? People's ability to continue to spend their money has been what's driven a lot of the the GDP in the U.S. And when you look at the U.S. consumer today, like if you had a time machine and you went back to 2022, what, what were people talking about? They were talking about how when you have 9% inflation and you get a 4 or 5% pay raise, that you're actually getting a pay cut. We heard that all the time. Oh, yeah. Now you get the other side. Wages are actually going up faster than inflation now. Yes. And there's more money in houses and housing rep- represents, I mean, the average American has like a savings account, a home, and maybe a 401k plan, right? And so when you think about the wealth that's locked up in people's houses and the ability for the U.S. consumer to keep spending money, 
there's a there's a lot of there's a strong foundation there. Their income is growing faster than inflation's happening. They've got a lot of money, a lot of money in their houses. Oh, and by the way, when you look at that chart on the housing costs, one of the things that that it talks about is that one of the big reasons that we saw such a spike in home rates is because that low interest rate environment happened right as the millennials entered household formation. Yeah, interesting. Huh? Okay, so mm-hmm. like you you look at, I mean, anybody that's had kids knows that as soon as you start having kids, your spending changes dramatically, right? Like for me, this is me. I had my first child, my daughter was born in 2019, right at the end. We had actually heard of COVID when she was born. It's called COVID-19 because they actually found out about it in 2019, even though we didn't find out and we didn't really shut down until 20. And so our spending, if you couple the, you know, 10, 20%, you know, whatever the inflation has been since COVID, plus the fact that we've had two children, and now we're thinking about getting new homes, and we're sending the kids to school, and we're paying for food and diapers and daycare and everything that goes along with it. If you don't think the economy benefits from that, you're kidding. Yeah. So it will be interesting over the next few years, we've got millennials that have good home equity, that have rising wages, that have growing families. And a lot of that points to a strong economy. Yeah. So, so we basically have a situation and and to far into the future, what year does millennial, the millennial generation, it goes, goes from like 1983 to 1990 something. I forget. It's like 1993. I think it's like a decade. so we've got basically another 10 years of the millennials fueling this housing market, you know, being irresponsible like my wife and I and having four kids. Um, <laughs> so but here's the um, but, interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. So who how, why are the millennials such a big generation? Who well, because they're, they're, they're the baby boomers and they're the, the largest gener- generation. Yeah, millennials they, are bigger. Yeah, I know, because the, the baby boomers on average had two children per household. So I think that um, more than two, right? Because it would have would have more to than be. two. I thought it was two. Could be. Well, it would be the same. Then. Okay. But anyway, besides. The oh, point, uh, so it must have been two, like two and a half then. Something like um, that. My parents had three. So I've got, I'm one of three. Not that that uh, means anything. That's a pretty small sample, right? <laughs> the, point, the point I'm making mm-hmm. is I, I wonder what's going to happen when kind of the other side of like right now you're in this Goldilocks scenario where millennials mm-hmm. are growing their houses and baby boomers are actually starting to spend a lot of money on things like medicine, housing, like, you know, they're aging. So eventually what happens as a lot of the baby boomers move out of their houses and what have you is it, it, it will be interesting to see how that impacts the economy at that point. Yeah. Well, um, it's definitely going to continue to put pr- uh, pressure, upward pressure on the ho- on housing prices. Um, and then, and the rents and everything. Um, another thing that it will, uh, will, will, it will do is uh, put pressure on inflation as well. So I don't think inflation is going to go away anytime soon. So the Fed's always going to be fighting its target of, uh, towards 2%. And, you know, this is speculation. So take it with a grain of salt, but, I don't believe the Fed is going to cut aggressively. I think the market is priced in uh, Fed cuts uh, up to uh, March. To me, this is so isn't it weird that the market wants rate 
starts to go down tremendously? It is. Um, I, I think I think personally short sighted because a, a low interest rate environment implies that the economy is struggling. Right. Yeah. And I think that the economy in its current form can afford these higher rates. I do not see people. I do not see demand collapsing. Do you see that? Because that's not my observation. I, 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 when I look at the market setup mm-hmm. for 2024, okay, at, at least with the way that it's the narrative that we have right now, you have the market, quote, betting on. I think, I think that the other day it was saying that there were like six cuts priced in or something like that, you know, based on the treasury curve. You can actually look at the treasury curve and see, see how these things are priced in. I don't, you know, cuts generally happen, like you said, because the economy is weakening. So if we're cutting rates, we're cutting because we're actually seeing softening. We're cutting because there's a recession. We're cutting because there's a crisis, potentially. I mean, COVID, 2008, those were times where rates were cut. They didn't get cut a quarter of a point at the time. They get cut straight to zero. Yeah. So when you look at the market, quote, pricing in six cuts, it's really not pricing in six cuts. It's pricing in the chance of like, two or three cuts. And then one bit of it's the price of like a cut to zero yeah, because of some issue. Now, the risk is, is that really a good situation? Like the market's cheering, the mar- the rate's going down. Uh, Ma- but but here's the thing. If you get the quote bad scenario, okay, rates stay higher. But why are the rates higher? Because the economy is char- churning along. So to inflation. me, yeah. to me, like what's, what, where is the, where is the downside? I don't see any. And that's why my base case, regardless, rate cut, rate hike, my base case over the over the near term is bullish. Um, you know, I'm not going to do what Wall Street does. You know, Wall Street gets into details and and forecasts uh, like prices on the S&P 500, which I think is a fool's errand. Um, we can get into that if you want to, because it's it's somewhat entertaining. But I, I don't think it, it's um, productive to try to forecast that where, where the market's going to head. But if you look at the macroeconomics and you see the backdrop that we just discussed, you know, which is a, you know, a consumer, a millennial, by the way, I did get stats on that. There are um, 168.62 million millennials and 159.21 million Gen X. Um, Actually, that's a million Gen X. That's that's Gen X boomers and silent generation. So that's all in one. So there are more millennials than there are Gen X baby boomers and silent generation. Everybody between the baby boomers and and millennials. So how big are the boomers? Do you have the stat on how many? Uh, Let's see here. This this particular stat does not give me just the boomers. I'm sorry. So uh, let me let me ask that. But let me get back on track. I'll I'll look that up while while I'm talking here. So. you know, we've got uh, a very large generation that's in their in their that they aren't even in their peak income earnings years yet, uh, and they're and they're they're in the household formation uh, stage. So you've got all this demand, you know, down the pipeline. Uh, combine that with a with a a government that is very uh, overly generous with its fiscal policy, shall we say? you know, which is inflationary. Um, and then, and then you also have this, uh, we still have a global interconnected economy and innovation that is fueling, um, 
you know, quality of life improvements. How how can you be a how can you be a bear in this? Uh, in this world, it, it just seems to me that the default is growth. You know, all that cash that's being created by this fiscal policy, by um, you know, labor productivity growth, and and and, and that manifesting through wage inflation, where that's got to find a home. It's got to be put somewhere. You can't spend it all. Well, I guess you can. You can spend it all, but then it goes back into the pockets. Yeah, of the, I mean, there's only know, two things. There's really the only thing you can do with it that's not good for the stock market is put it in your bank account. And even that is arguable. Well, then the banks use it and the banks profit from it. So, so, so maybe you can pay down your mortgage, but then even the banks using it because they just have less mortgage. So really, is there anything that you, I mean, if the consumer makes more money and can, has more capacity for spending and, and needs to do more spending in what world do, do earnings go down? Okay. Before I got to take a break, because this just blew my mind. Um, there are only 76.4 million baby boomers in the U.S. So the millennial generation more than is more than double baby boomers. Is, is that right? As according to the U.S. Census Bureau, I wonder if that's 76. That, that's got to be alive today. So that, that can't be because right. a lot. So yeah, there, there must have been be. higher than that. Anyway, uh, moving on. But still, I mean, that's that's astonishing because we, we've been. We've grown up hearing the statistic that the baby boomers are the largest generation that's ever existed. My gosh, millennials dwarf it. I tell you what, those those baby boomers, they were busy, weren't they? <laughs> so anyway, um, I, I just uh, am very optimistic on the economy, especially the U.S. economy. Yeah, I think that international uh, economies, especially areas like China, China's some issues, demographic issues actually are having it for the same reason that we're talking about. China has the dec- other declining side of population. Japan had that issue, um, and they still have that issue, and that's partially why they they have have stubborn, uh, stubbornly low inflation rates in Japan. But you know, this is not meant to be a ma- macroeconomics um, uh, analysis here. So I just wanted to make the base case for why um, I think over over the near term. I think that our economy is more likely to grow than it is to decline. And I, I think that needs to be said because a lot of the media that I consume today that's uh, you know geared towards people that are wanting to be in tune with finances is very bearish. You know, they're like, oh, doom and gloom, deflationary, uh, uh, pro, you know, de- deflationary collapses on the horizon. I'm like, in what world are you living? I, I do not see that. I, I think it's <laughs> it's ridiculous to assume that. All I see is you you go to Costco on the weekends. It's standing room only. People are pushing out their big screen TVs. People are buying cars still. Yeah, is it is it at the peak as it as it was in twenty twenty one? No, but that's when the government was handing out literally handing out ten thousand dollars checks to everyone. You know, like you can't compare it to that. But you can still look at it today and say, well, it's more than slightly more than it was last year. Um, and I'm interested if you don't have any comments on that, I do want to get your comments on this big pile of home equity. We talked about this 334,000 in home equity people are sitting on homeowners are sitting on. I mean, that's looking mighty tempting to a lot of people. Well, so for, first, the comment that I'll make about media is that negativity sells. I mean, it oh, yeah. sounds, it certainly sounds smarter a lot of times to be negative. And it, it it also is more attention grabbing. So it's clear to see why if the it news bleeds, it leads. Yeah. And, and then as far as the home equity, I, you know, 
I think that every client has a different situation. Some of the clients that I work with, as an example, are are more comfortable with debt. Some clients are less comfortable with debt. But if you look down and you say, okay, like let's let's just I'll just use an example of 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 uh, I'll just make something up. So let's say you bought your house in 2019 or 2017, and you paid five hundred thousand yeah. dollars. You're you're probably sitting on a house now worth eight hundred thousand bucks, right? And so if you put down twenty percent on your five hundred thousand dollar house, you put down a hundred thousand dollars. If your house is now worth eight hundred thousand, let's just make some basic assumptions. Let's assume you've never paid down the mortgage. Let's not factor in home improvements. Let's just kind of look at it simply. You now owe four hundred thousand, which was the amount that you originally borrowed, and your house is worth eight hundred. So, for putting a hundred in, you could now, if you sold the house, again outside, you know, getting getting about a check for four hundred thousand dollars. So the question is, as the millennials grow up. Because I'm in this situation, I have a two and a four year old. Um, our house maybe is feeling a little tighter than it once did, and so there's conversations around: Are we really going to get rid or sell our house with a three percent mortgage? Potentially buy a house at a six percent mortgage. You know, those are those are tough conversations to have. But on the other side of that, in the example I just gave, so now you've got a four hundred thousand dollar check. You, let's say you go to buy a million dollar house. You're not going to buy a house that generally is cheaper. Most people upsize when they go to buy a new house, but you know you want to put twenty percent down, okay? Because it's a million dollar house, twenty percent down payments, two hundred thousand dollars. So now you've got an extra two hundred thousand dollars in your pocket. So what do you do with that? Do you put that down on the house? Do you invest with it? And we've had this conversation a number of times, kind of off off script, so to speak, and. The the bottom line is that it really depends. Yeah. I mean, if if the problem, if the client's issue is that they can't sleep with debt at all and debt makes them anxious and they're really concerned about cash flow, well, then maybe you put the extra money down on the house, have a smaller mortgage, keep them with less debt because it kind of fills their emotional bucket, so to speak. But on the other hand, if you have a client that maybe lacks liquidity, right? Like it is important to have money outside of your house and your retirement account for any number of things that can come up in life. So maybe, and maybe, maybe the cash flow isn't the problem. Maybe they could, uh, you know, having a mortgage that's $400 more or $400 less, or that, you know, maybe that's not what's going to make or break their finances. And by taking that $200,000 and let's say in a perfect world, investing or saving it, that their balance sheet still looks the same, right? Their net worth is still the same. But when you look down at how they've spread their money, they've got some in the house, some in non-retirement accounts, some in retirement accounts. I think that having that blend is really important as you go through the inevitable ebbs and flows of life. Now, but that's not what the average American is going to do. You know it. <laughs> well, <laughs> so and, you know, like what you're mentioning, the things you're mentioning are sensible. Like pat had the cash reserve, you know, you know, keep some, keep some of that equity for a rainy day, just in case, you know, the, your days aren't perfect, which they're not going to be, which makes a lot of sense. Um, or put it into the mortgage and have a less lower mortgage payment. But you know what people are going to do? They're going to say, oh, oh, yeah, I got, uh, you know, 
a quarter million dollars a gift from the the housing market gods. That G wagon is looking pretty good. <laughs> yeah, or you know, what I think is more realistic is probably furniture. But but let's yeah, be but, but let's be real. This is the important important part of having an advisor. Mm-hmm. One because yeah. you're you are depriving the person in your example of somebody over their shoulder that says, "Hey, this is the responsible thing to do with this." And by the way, we could still blow some of this. I mean, there's plenty of times where I will tell a client. Go blow some of it. I just want to make sure that we've got a we've we've got a process for evaluating how much of that should you be blowing. Yeah. Okay. And then let's step out of you know let's step out of the okay that person needs an advisor because I agree with you left to people's own devices it's a big chunk of money why wouldn't you go spend it so but then beyond that let's talk about what we were talking about before well if they go do buy a G wagon or what I think is more likely is blow it all in furniture. Furniture. Right. Because you're going to buy the house and then you're not going to have furniture and you're going to, you know, look down at the handy downs that you have in your old house. And you're going to look at the two hundred thousand dollar check and you go, gosh, you know, that pottery barn counter restoration hardware looks awful nice now. So I, I agree with you. But that back to our core point, only good for the stock market. So what you're saying is we should buy stock and restoration hardware. <laughs> kidding. That is not not what he's saying at all. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that. Overall, a lot of that home equity, that 334000 per individual is going to find, it's going to slip out. It's going to get spent, most of it irresponsibly to my chagrin, because I am, as you know me, I am very anti-debt. I do not have a home equity line. My house is going to be paid off as soon as possible. I am just allergic to debt. And I, and I feel like that is backed up by a lot of the facts out there. So I was reading up on um, some studies done by the uh, the U.S. Uh, what is that? The Consumer Protection Bureau. What is that called? Oh, golly. CFPB. Yeah, the CFPB. And then, Bureau. yeah. So they, they had a study not so long ago. Um, yeah, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't have it. Uh, and also the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. So there's been several studies out there that suggest that having a paid off mortgage correlates strongly with um, uh, higher net worths uh, and also with just a uh, better uh, sense of uh, financial well-being. Yeah, but is this a, a case of correlation versus causation? I mean, you know, you just I just I know, wonder. I know, but but I certainly feel in my soul that there's some divine influence that's telling me to avoid debt. It's like and- <laughs> saying that people that have more money are happier, which I would actually argue, I mean, there is probably a level of like too, too little money can be unhappy, but the, the clients that have more money than they need what's do- in- doesn't necessarily make what's you interesting, um, there I listened to a pot, another podcast recently. I forget where, which one it was. I think it might've been uh, Huberman Labs where they were talking about um, happiness and how it correlates like the, the happiest nations are not the wealthiest nations. In fact, sometimes it's the complete opposite. The wealthiest nations are the least happy, but what they found is that what correlates most strongly with happiness is not your uh, financial status. It's that you are in the, a similar financial status as your peers. Yeah. So it's like, you comparing. Yes. It's basically the keeping it, up with ba- the Joneses. Basically equality. Equality is what they're getting at to. So as long as you're somewhat equal to the folks, and that's why social media has deteriorated happiness is because you're constantly comparing yourself to those outside of your peer groups. 
you know, most of them are celebrities who have significantly more money, uh, you know, and that can lead to unhappiness. Just an interesting, interesting anecdote. We can move back on to the topic, um, which is, you know, most consumers are going to dip into their home equity. They're going to pad their quality of life. And, and, you know, who am I to say that don't don't do that? You know, I know my opinion is I want them to I, I want to help people do that through the planning. Right. Because from to me, if you look at this, you have a family. Let's just let's run with our example. Let's say you have a family, husband and wife, 35 years old ish. They've got young children. You you don't realize how quickly time goes until you have kids. And then you look down at two, you know, how many kids you have and you start doing the math on how long you're going to have them in your house. And I don't mean them in your house like until 18. I mean, like in, by the time they're 12 and 13 years old, they want to go hang out with their friends and, and do other stuff. They don't want to be around you. How many years do you have where your kids look at you and say, I love you and I really want to be around you? And it sounds so great to say, hey, I'm going to get that $200,000 check when I sell my house. I'm going to bank and invest all of it. I'm going to be perfectly responsible with it. And I'm going to end up being really, really wealthy one day. But what I think is important about financial planning is that you can look at that client and say, hey, you are going to be wealthy one day. We're going to put away some of that money. Here's what we're going to do to make sure that we can continue to grow and stay wealthy. But you also are going to get these years back. And so how can we take that money and use it in a way that, that, that drives purpose in your life? Yeah. I, I, I would think that you hit, hit it uh, concisely there. And I think that's a great way to close that conversation up. So for those listening here, if you are sitting on a pile of home equity and you need to know what you should do with it, how can they reach out to you, Brent? Uh, so my name is Brent Gargano. Uh, I'm findable. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram. The name of my company company is Infinite Wealth Planning. Uh, we also have a LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and then the website is infinitewealthplanning.com. Uh, you can find links to my schedule uh, and, 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 and feel free to set up a time. Yeah, Brent does a wonderful job. I highly recommend him. Uh, for more information about uh, me, my name is Ben Jones. Uh, you can find me on X at the Carrot Stick. That's uh, Carrot is spelled K-A-R-A-T. So it's the Carrot Stick. Uh, you can also find my newsletter on the, uh, not the, but just www.carrotstick.com spelled the same way. K-A-R-A-T-S-T-I-C-K.com. Thank you for listening. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisory services offered through National Wealth Management Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from LPL Financial, LLC. The opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. This information is not intended as authoritative guidance or tax or legal advice. You should consult with your attorney or tax advisor for guidance on your specific situation. Brent Gargano is not affiliated with LPO Financial.